So James chapter 4, as we continue our journey through the letter written by James, I'm going to just remind you as you guys make your way that direction of where we have been up to this point. In chapter 1, James gives us really an overview of the topics that he's going to cover throughout the remainder of the book. But he starts off by saying, hey, by the way, good news, you're going to have trials and tribulations. And so James gives them this uh, information. You're going to have trials, but when these trials come, uh, count it as joy. And as James is writing this, he's writing to a group, remember, largely that has been uh, persecuted, has been sent out, have been driven from their homes, from their families. Many of their own friends have been killed at the hands of the Jews there in Jerusalem. And so they've been driven out and away from their home. And what James says is, Count it is all joy. Now, what you guys also know is that as they are driven out of Jerusalem, as God actually grows them in the middle of this persecution, in the middle of this trial, what else is happening is the word of God is being taken to all of the Roman Empire, is being driven to the farthest reaches of the earth as they suffer persecution. And so it gives us a different perspective when we look at trials and tribulations in our life as God uses these to actually mature us to grow us, and also to grow people around us. And so God uses this, and what we see is this salvation message is carried out, and at the end of chapter 1, what James gives them as, a, as an impetus, as an encouragement is, look, you've heard these words, don't just be a listener. Don't be a hearer only, but go out and be a doer of the word. Take this charge and go out into your communities, into the highways and byways, and go do something. And so chapter 2 leads into this idea of works. You've been saved by grace, not by your own works. But as you've been saved by grace, you'll be in a spot where you will not uh, be able to contain the joy you have. And so as you go out, go share the good news of what you've found. And what James says in chapter 2 is, look, if you claim to have faith and yet you have no works, uh, that's what he calls very lovingly uh, dead faith. Your faith is dead. You don't actually have faith at all. And so James, in speaking about this, it seems kind of harsh. It's definitely a punch to the gut. And yet, as I was considering this this week, do you realize that uh, some of the best writers write from personal experience? Here's James. His half-brother is Jesus. And yet he did not believe in Jesus while he was alive. He claimed to have faith. He would have claimed to know Yahweh. He would have claimed to know Jehovah, and yet there was no sign of it in his life as the Messiah they'd been waiting on their entire lives for thousands of years was actually right there in his home, and he did not believe until he saw the resurrected Christ. Many of us are like that too. We can go years and years of our lives not believing, thinking that we're doing what we're supposed to do, just being good boys and girls. And yet when you run into the resurrected Lord, your life will never, ever be the same. This is what James is encouraging them. This is why he's giving them this exhortation because he wants them to experience real, true resurrection. And what he says there is when this faith plays out practically in your life, what it'll look like is a four-letter word, but not one of those bad ones, love. It'll look like love. That's what it'll look like in a person's life. And so as we begin to love people, and it's about works and not all about our words, we can talk a big game, but if it doesn't show up in how we go out and handle and treat people, he follows this up with chapter 3 and says, by the way, um, your words still do matter. 
Your words are still vitally important. And if you've ever been affected by someone's words, you know this to be true. That words have the ability to build up. They have the ability to tear down. Entire countries have been revolutionized. Uh, Incredible atrocities have happened, all because of words. Words have power. This is why uh, James says in chapter 3, it is a fire that can ignite the fires of hell from our mouth, our tongues. And so take it very seriously. And he's then going to follow this up as we enter into chapter 4. And I'm reminded of the verse I shared with you last week, what Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 34, is that from the mouth, uh, it actually reveals what's going on in our heart. And so the reason I gave you a message title from a Motley Crue album wasn't just to see if anybody knew Motley Crue songs. It was because this is what the Lord wants us to get. He wants us to actually kickstart our hearts. Get your heart in gear. And so from the mouth comes the abundance of the heart. Now, James chapter 4 verse 1. He writes, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And so where do wars and fights and battles actually begin? They begin in our own hearts. They start internally with each of us. And so what James says is where they start is from within, from the lust that you actually have within you. Now, it's important to note that this word lust doesn't mean what usually guys think of, and it's sort of the, hey, baby. It's not that kind of lust. It's selfish ambition. It's my own selfish desires that I have going on inside of me. I want, I demand, I need, I, I, I. And by the way, if you're one of those that uses a lot of that, you might have an eye problem. You might have an eye problem because what happens is is I want things when other people get in the way of the things I want. What I begin to do is I pray on them. I begin to speak ill of them behind their back. These people are getting in my way, and so I'm going to cut them down quickly. And so wars and strife begin in my heart as I pray on people. And what James is going to encourage us to do is to stop praying on people and instead P-R-A-Y, pray for people. Now, what we will find here, and we'll cover this more in detail in a few minutes, is that where pridefulness uh, exists, prayerfulness does not. These two cannot actually cohabitate. Pridefulness and prayerfulness cannot be in the same person. And so verse 3, as we continue, uh, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so many times we say, well, look, I've come to the Lord in prayer. I've asked for things, but God doesn't give me what I want. I continue to pray and ask for things, but he's not fulfilling my requests. Well, here's what James says in verse 3. It's because you ask and miss. You miss completely because you're spending it on your own desires. So many of the times what we want is a uh, make it your way. We want to give God directives. We want to tell the Lord what we have in mind, and our expectation is he's like a short-order cook. He's just going to make whatever I come up with. Lord, do this. Lord, bless this. And so the question is, do you pray directively, or do you pray reflectively? 
What James, this entire letter, is trying to encourage in these people that have gone out, they've been persecuted and sent to the far-flung places all over the world, is that you need to grow up. You need to be more mature. And as we mature as believers, what happens is my prayers go from being directive to reflective. I begin to put my will to the side and pick up the Father's will. This is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus gives is that famous passage which is known as the Lord's Prayer. But how does it go? He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer is, Lord, your will be done. It's a reflective prayer. And then if you fast forward a little bit to the end of Jesus' life here on earth in Matthew chapter 26, just hours before he is going to be beaten and then brutally murdered, this is how he prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says in verse 39, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's staring down the barrel knowing he's going to be taken in and beaten and murdered. And oh, by the way, all the sins that we would ever commit would all be hung on him. It's a pretty heavy day. And so as he's reflecting on this, what he says is, If there's any way that this could go, I would like it to pass. God's okay with us being honest, by the way, and those kind of things. Lord, I'm not really enjoying this particular trial right now. But what he follows it up with is, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, I want to accomplish your will with whatever time I have left. And by the way, when we begin to pray like that, you know what happens? Prayer gets answered. Because his will is going to happen whether we like it or not, whether we would pick it or not. Now, the encouragement I would give you is what James chapter 1 says, is that he only gives good gifts. He's not capable of giving a bad gift. And so the reality is, even if I don't view whatever's happening in my life as good, he has ultimately determined this is for my good. Now, this is why Jesus could say in John chapter 14, maybe this passage has confused you from time to time when it comes to prayer, Jesus says there in John 14, uh, pick up in verse 13 with me. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He's speaking to them about answered prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do. And what we find is as we mature and our prayer becomes, Father, whatever is your will, I want that to be done in my life. Well, if I'm on his team, if I'm all about his will, guess what? It's going to be accomplished. And so prayer will begin to be answered in your life when you begin to pray and mature like that, when we align with the will of the Father. Now, verse 4 as we continue. Adulterers and adulteresses. That's a wonderful way. Good morning, by the way, adulterers and adulteresses. James continues. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? 
Now, it seems pretty harsh as James is starting off this verse, hey, adulterers and adulteresses. But it's important to understand that continually throughout Scripture, God has this view of us as the bride of Christ. That there is this special union for those that he has chosen that also choose him. For those people, he is set aside as the bride of Christ. Now, for you manly men, you're already saying, I don't want to be a bride. Tough luck. You're going to want to be this kind of bride, I assure you. And so we're the bride of Christ, and he's set this all up. But what happens is when we fall in love with the world, and what James is referring to in particular is the world system, all of the the world systems that are out there, what happens is when we fall in love with that, what we are actually doing is we're falling in love with the one who is in charge of the world system, one who Paul says is the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan, by the way. And so what we are essentially doing is we are committing spiritual adultery. We are running around on our spiritual husband. And so this terminology is used because of how God views us. And what he will do is he will fight to keep his bride. What this verse says is that love of the world or joining together friendship with the world is enmity with God. That means war, by the way. And a little bit of insight is uh, when you go to war with God, do you know who wins? Yeah, it's not you. I, I give you a little, little inside track. It's not you. It's not me. And this morning as I was going through my daily Bible reading, I was in Jeremiah, and he was prophesying about the fall of the Moabites. How many of you have actually seen a Moabite around lately? Anybody? That's what I thought. Any Philistines? Anyone run into a Philistine? Right? That's what I thought. Why? Because they went to war with God. You will not win. And the same is true when we decide to fall in love with the world. We are at war with God. It is futile. And the reason he's sharing all this typology is because there in verse 5, he says the spirit, that's a capital S, who dwells in you yearns jealously. God is actually jealous. Do you understand? That's a character trait of God that he gives us in Scripture. Exodus chapter 20 is the spot that I take you to for the text. This is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And here God says in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness, or anything that is in heaven or above or earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am jealous. This is a character trait of him. Now, immediately for some of you, you're like, God's jealous? That seems like a weird character trait. But think about this. What it means to be jealous, it's different from envy or covetousness. Jealousy means you want something back that was previously yours. To envy or to covet means you want something that belonged to someone else. But when we are jealous, when God is jealous, he wants something back that was previously his. And that something is us. He desires to have a relationship with us. And he will stop at no links to be able to make that happen. Now, for years and years, I thought that in reading through this, that God must have some kind of an ego problem. I mean, why does he want me to worship him so badly? Does he need me to worship him because he's got this gigantic ego that I must come alongside and fulfill? But what I've come to realize is this is not about God's ego. This is all about what's best for me. 
You see, anytime I put anything above God in my life, I have made it an idol. With my time, with my money, with my efforts, with my energy, with my thought, when I put those things in my life above God, I have turned it into an idol. And the danger is what happens when something happens to the idol. Even in the the most precious of relationships between a husband and a wife, if I put my wife as my idol in my life, I want to please her above everything else, even above God. What happens when what happens when she decides she doesn't love me anymore? What happens when she didn't want a 42-year-old guy whose hair's fallen out, right? Then all of a sudden, God doesn't love me. The same thing is true with our kids, with our career. What happens when you get the diagnosis? What happens when they come to you after spending years and years of your life on your career and they say, you know what, you're not good enough anymore? My God just told me I'm not good enough. You see, that becomes the issue at hand. This is why God is so very careful to say, don't put any other God before me because his promise is to never leave me or forsake me. Now, here's the deal. If this has been you, if you've slipped up in this area, uh, you're in good company. (laughs) Welcome to the club. And here's the other bit of good news. Uh, It starts in verse 6. Of James 4. But he gives more grace. What he gives for those of us who have been in that spot is grace. Getting what we do not deserve. That's the definition ultimately of grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. He gives more grace. Even when I get it completely and totally wrong, even when I stumble and fall, even when I sin, and I'm so ashamed of what I've done, what he gives me is more grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. He is so willing to give us grace. But the verse continues, God Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who does he resist? He resists pride in our lives. This is what gets in the way over and over again. This is the blocker of grace for us to be able to receive. It's our own pride. But what prayer does, when we enter into a prayer relationship with him, what it does is it sets aside my plan and says, Lord, I want your plan to happen in my life. I want your will to be done. But so often we come with a plan, right? Like, Lord, this is what I got going on. Now bless it. I've got it all laid out for you right here. It should be awesome. Please bless it. One of my favorite quotes of all time uh, from Mike Tyson when he was at his absolute heyday, when he was just knocking people out left and right, people would say, you know what? We think we've got a game plan for how to get to Mike Tyson. And what he said was, look, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face by life, right? And so what prayer does is it sets aside my plans. It puts me on the shelf and says, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. It humbles us. The problem we have, though, with humility is it oftentimes comes at the hand of humiliation. 
Humility often in our lives comes through humiliation. And my flesh completely rejects it. But it is the absolute best thing for me. When you think about John chapter 4, and in this story, this is the famous story of the Samaritan woman who's at the well. Jesus goes out of his way to meet with this lady. He, he goes through Samaria, and no good Jew would go through Samaria. These people were dirty and filthy and less than. They were beneath them in society, at least by their standards. And Jesus says, I don't care about none of that. He goes to this woman who is of a less than status, who is there in the middle of the day filling up her cup with water in the middle of the day because she wanted to avoid people. Nobody would go to the well in the middle of the day unless you're trying to avoid others. And the reason she was there in the middle of the day was because she did not have a husband or two husbands, but she had been married five times, and she was living with a man who was not her husband. And what Jesus does is he addresses her like a daughter. He gives her grace in the middle of her humiliation. And what I love about this story is the woman takes off and runs and proceeds to tell everybody about Jesus. She goes from being so ashamed that she didn't want to tell or talk to anybody to wanting to go and talk to everybody because that's what freedom looks like. So we so often avoid humiliation because we don't want to be humbled. It's all about our pride. And what the Lord wants to do is actually lift us up. And what verse 7 says is, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What the Lord wants is for us to be able to submit to the Lord in prayer. This is why I started off by saying, uh, Where prayerfulness exists, pridefulness cannot. What he wants us to do is to be prayerful. To put a stop to pride in our life. To actually overcome sin by hitting our knees. Lord, I give up. I can't do it anymore. I surrender. It's all yours. But what the enemy does is over and over and over again, he runs the same place. He's like Woody Hayes. If anybody remembers three yards and a cloud of dust, Woody Hayes loved to just run the football, pound it down your throat. This is what Satan wants to do. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Here's the three plays, by the way. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Over and over again, from the time that Adam and Eve were in the garden, the same three plays are what Satan runs. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Now, when I was in eighth grade, we had a football coach, and we were in the conference championship, and this little guy, he sort of looked like Yoda. And this little Yoda-looking guy, Art Newton was his name, but he was gruff, and he loved to growl at us. And what he gave us to run for that season were three plays. Fullback dive right, power right, sweep right. Now, he would laugh and joke with his little lisp that he had. He said, you actually have six plays, boys, because you got fullback dive left, fullback, or power left, and sweep left. You don't have three plays, you got six. And so for the whole season, he would only give us these three plays until we got him down to perfection. And so we find ourselves in the final game of the year for the championship against the dreaded Cumberland Pirates. Ugh. 
the Cumberland Pirates. And we're there against Cumberland, and I'm the fullback on the team. And what you have to know about the fullback is I might get the ball two, three times a game, tops. That's it. Uh, I'm built for strength, not for speed. Nobody's giving me the ball a bunch. And, but the play comes in at the start of this series, and it's a tie game, and the play comes in, and it's fullback dive right. Hey, called my number. This is one of my times to shine. I get the ball, 10 yards of first down. The play comes in again, and it's fullback dive left. I'm thinking, whoa, my lucky day. I get the ball, 10 yards, first down. Wouldn't you know it, the play comes in for the third play of the series, it's fullback dive right. I'm thinking, wait a minute, uh, this boy was meant to carry two or three times a game. I'm now getting ready to carry it three times in one series. I'm huffing and puffing just a little bit, but I'm not going to deny getting the football. I get the ball, fullback dive right, 10 more yards, first down. At this point in time, Coach Newton quit sending in a runner with plays. He just stood on the sidelines like the little Yoda that he was and said, Run it again, boys! Run it again! Thinking, this is fantastic. The defense is going to know what we're doing. We run it again and again and again until finally I get the chance to score a touchdown a few plays later. Understand, this is what Satan does to us. We don't put up a defense. We do not resist. And he's over on the sidelines going, run it again, boys! Over and over. And so what the Lord is imploring us to do, what James is writing to us about is resist. Resist the devil and he has to flee. He cannot continue to play defense on you. He has to flee from you if you resist. Now, you will say, but I've resisted and I've not had victory. Well, good news. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says, have you yet resisted unto bloodshed? You might think you've resisted, but you haven't resisted to the point where there was blood. So we don't put forth that kind of effort. But the reality is, when we resist the devil, he has to flee. Because the final words of Christ on the cross were, to tell us die. It is finished. It's already been won. The battle is over. We've already been victorious. And so the encouragement here is to keep going. And, and for us as Christians, the only offensive weapon we actually have, and the reason that we spend so much time going through Scripture, some of you would think ad nauseum, why are we still in the book of James? Why did it take us a year to get through Matthew? The reason is this is our only offensive weapon. The only thing we actually have in our arsenal. The very thing that Jesus used when he was tempted by the devil was the Word of God. And so continue to spend time in it. Continue to memorize. Little children are memorizing a memory verse. Not because we just want them to be able to rinse, wash, and repeat, but they want to arm them with the only thing they're going to have in their arsenal to fight against the devil when he comes with his three plays. Now continuing in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Here's the beautiful thing. If you have wondered where is God in this situation, he is near. Turn towards him 
The reality is he didn't go anywhere. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And, and the, the truth of that statement is he is right there with us the whole time. All we have to do is turn. That's what repentance actually means. It's a changing in mind that leads to a change in action. It's a turning 180 degrees, turning towards the Lord. Now in verse 9, you'll note with me that James calls for them to lament and to mourn and to weep. And what he's asking them to lament and mourn over is their own sinful condition. This is how we should look at sin in our lives. But so often, what I have done in my past is actually brag about it. I'm going to brag about all the sin that I've done. When the reality is I need to be shamed over what I've done. That's not to keep me in that spot. But when I think about the old man, when I think about the flesh that I have lived in, that man Thank God he died. This is actually where the Lord comes to us. When we're in the middle of that state where we, where we think about our sin and we're actually brokenhearted about the man that I've been, I can then be reassured about the man that he has made me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old man has passed away. And so praise the Lord because he is the man, I am now a new man. All because of submission. Lord, you got to change me. you got to fix this. God, turn it around. Verse 11. He continues and says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, what law is James talking about? When we went through Galatians just a few weeks ago, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul said, this is all the law. You can sum it up in one word, and that is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so if I'm truly loving my neighbor, but then I go around my neighbor's back and I speak ill of him, then I'm not actually fulfilling the law of Christ at all. I am not being a doer of the law. And so it's instead encouraging and building up. Now, verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? There is one lawgiver, there is one judge, and his name is Jesus. What did Jesus have to say about judgment upon others? I'm so glad you asked. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will be able to clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What the Lord has to say about judgment is not that we are to never judge, but if you want to judge, it first needs to start with you. Judgment starts by being introspective, by looking at the gigantic two-by-four sticking out of my eye, pulling it out before I go to pick out the speck in my brother's eye. And so judgment starts from within. 
Now, Jesus doesn't tell us not to judge, but in fact, what we're to do as Christians, as believers, we are to be fruit inspectors. He would go on in Matthew 7 to finally say, look, a good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor a bad tree bad fruit, but a bad tree good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. In the fire. Therefore, verse 20, by their fruits, you will know them. If I'm not called to be a judge, I am for sure called to be a fruit inspector. But that first fruit that I should inspect is my own. I've got to take a good, hard look at my tree. What kind of fruit is coming from my lips, from my actions? What kind of fruit am I producing by what is taking place around me? But to not be a fruit inspector, understand this, is to not actually be loving. To see something taking place in a brother's life or a sister's and not addressing it is not love. It is actually the complete opposite. You're hating them. You're leaving them in a position of a sinful state by not addressing what is going on in their life. Now, it's a careful spot to be in. You have to first make sure you've judged everything going on with you before you go and address something with someone else. But what Warren Wearsby says about this is that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. So when all I do is love and love and love, I'm in fact just being a hypocrite if I've not included truth in the middle of that love. But if all I give you is truth and truth and truth, I don't know if you've ever been one of those, but man, it's brutal. <laughs> I mean, it, it hurts. And what I love most about someone that says they're just brutally honest, you know what they hate? Uh, somebody being brutally honest with them. <laughs> they don't like that at all. It's truth with love. Can I come to someone in love, do they know me well enough? Have we spent enough time together for me to be able to say, hey, I think something's going on here. I, you've got some fruit going on that's not good. I, I want to share with you because I, I love you enough to tell you the truth about what's happening in your life. Now, continuing with verse 13. As soon as I get to the right chapter, that'll make more sense. Verse 13, come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. How many times do I come up with a plan and then ask the Lord to turn around and bless it? I do that over and over again. I pray directively to the Lord. I try to give him directions when the reality is I don't even know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. With a congregation of this size, even though we are not many in number, the reality is there's probably someone in here who will not be here a year from now. We don't know who it'll be. It might not be me for all I know. And so many times we get stuck in our own head making plans for tomorrow and we don't address what's happening right here and right now. And what James is saying is what would be better is if the Lord wills it. Lord, if this is your will for my life, then man, I'm excited for it. If it's not, Father, redirect me. Redirect whatever you need to redirect because I want the absolute best in my life. Jesus shared a parable, something similar to this in Luke chapter 12. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 16. 
This is what the Lord says. He spoke a parable to them. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those who will, then whose will those things be which you have provided? In verse 21, so he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, the real question we should be asking isn't about what's the balance in my bank statement or what have I laid aside for my future. And by the way, it's not bad to have a savings account, but my question to you is what are we doing to set aside a spiritual inheritance? What kind of inheritance are we leaving for the next generation and the generation after us? Is it one that is going to actually last on into eternity? Are we spending all of our time saving for today so that we can take care of our kids financially, but the reality is we're leaving them spiritually bankrupt? If they're not seeing mom and dad, if they're not seeing us on our knees or at the table in prayer, how are we actually directing them to be able to live and fulfill their lives? Are we leaving them anything spiritually to be able to say, I've seen this done? Or instead, are we leaving it to them to figure it out for themselves? Now, continuing on that same theme, I know you guys are loving that theme. Continuing on that theme, but verse 16, now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The question is, am I putting my hope in my 401k? If I am, then it's evil. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't save. It means where am I actually driving hope for the future within my family? Now, verse 17, as we head down the home stretch. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Therefore is how James starts it. And you guys, because you're Bible students, know when you see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It refers to the previous passage where James is talking about a spiritual inheritance. Are we leaving behind something that is eternal or something that is temporary? With all this in mind, in light of all this, what he says to coin the phrase from the good people at Nike, when you see something good, go do it. Just do it. Don't spend all your time thinking about it and having paralysis by analysis, but go and do it. And yet over and over again, we have all these plans that we make. And we'll say these things are non-negotiables. I'm going to plan out this wonderful trip I'm going to plan out all these things for my future. What about church? Eh, if the Lord wills it. Eh, I might get to it. Might not. But God will be good with that. Hey, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. <laughs> Am I making plans for the things that are truly the most important? What if we flip that around? What if Jesus was non-negotiable and everything else in my life 
could work around him, could actually fit around his schedule for my life. What if we flipped the script? What would it possibly look like? But here's the thing. <laughs> what, if, what if I don't feel like it sometimes? You ever been in that boat? Lord, I just don't have it today. Just don't know if I'm feeling up to it today. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus addresses this as well. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. He asked this question about a man who had two sons. He said, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go and work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. In verse 30, he came to the second one and said, likewise. And the second son answered and said, I go, sir. Yes, sir, you bet. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. It's all about the one who actually does the will of the Father. You see the value that God puts on obedience, even when we don't feel like it. There are times for each of you that you have things that you just do not feel like doing. Some days it might be, just maybe, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like it today. I want to encourage you and actually uh, come alongside you and say, way to go. Because today, you did it. Even if you didn't feel like it, even if the kids were an absolute nightmare, even if you couldn't get your hair to do what you wanted it to do, even if you're like me and you don't have that much hair to even get to do what you wanted it to do, no matter what the situation or the circumstance was, you did it. You took place in a victory today. Because you got up and you went for it. But knowing what to do and ignoring it completely is actually sinful. Knowing there's something good for me or good for someone else and not doing it is a sin. It's missing out also at the same time on what God has actually got for you. One last place I'll go in scripture. This is a familiar passage probably to many of you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he says this, for we are his workmanship, or the word in the Greek I love is poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You see, before even the foundation of the earth, God had works in mind. And when he looked at these works that needed to be done, he thought of you. He thought about you. He then created you to be able to go out and accomplish the things that he had in mind for you to do. These might be big things. These might be small things. They range all over the gamut. So many times our mind just immediately goes to the big things. But here's the thing. How many of you in here today have arms? Lots of you have arms. 
congratulations, the Lord knew that there would be a door that needed to be opened for someone who just needed a little bit of kindness shown to them today. And so he said, I'm going to give you arms. He gave you feet to be able to walk into that place, to be able to help those people that just needed some shoes for their kid. You see, oftentimes, they're not the most complicated things that the Lord has in mind for us, that has, he has set aside for us to be able to do. Now, alongside this, understand that as God has created a work for you to be able to do, he's given you the ability to do it. He's even brought you through trials and tribulations and difficulties and molded you in a way that maybe you're a person that can speak to someone else who's going through that same thing. Perhaps you've lost someone that you love dearly. Maybe you've gone through a difficult season of disease and, and predicament that you've had in your life. Do you understand that God has put you in that position to walk through that so that you can actually come alongside and walk along someone else? You can come alongside them. You can speak to them in a way that I cannot. Because I've not walked through that particular thing. But God's given me trials in my life. And he's given me things that he's allowed me to walk through so that I can come along someone and encourage them in that similar spot. And so he has created works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works. Now, if you've got this question, what would the Lord have for me to do as we wrap up today? And you wonder, is this something that the Lord really wants for me to do? Three simple things you can run through the grid of to know, is this something the Lord wants me to do or not? First of all, does it fulfill the law of Christ? What is that law? It's singular. It's love. Does this involve loving someone Building them up, coming alongside them, because if it is the opposite, it did not come from the Lord. That came from your own selfish heart. Hate to be the one to break it to you. Secondly, does it go against Scripture? I have shared this with you before, but there are some things that God cannot do. I know all things are possible with God, but there are some things He cannot do, and I'm thankful for it, because one of those is He can never go against His Word. And He will not give you something that is against his word. It is perfect. And so, does it go against scripture? If it does, it did not come from the Lord. Finally, and maybe as important as the other two, who does it glorify? If it glorifies me, then oftentimes it comes from my own selfish ambition. When we have the opportunity to go out and do those good works that he has put in our path, right there for us to be able to do, it will always glorify the Father. And if it glorifies him, even if we don't get noticed, even if nobody ever realizes we're the one who did it, then it was all for his glory. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness for your greatness. Lord, for some, this was very challenging today. And for that, we thank you, Lord. For others, this was convicting. 
for that. We praise you, Jesus. And for others, this was exactly what we needed to hear. To go and do the good works that you have been prompting us to. You've been moving on our hearts to go and make disciples of all nations, Lord. Thank you so much for coming alongside us through your word and encouraging us to do this. Father, we cannot be thankful for every situation, but we can be thankful in every situation because you are growing us and you are maturing us from faith to faith and from glory to glory. We praise you for that, Father. In Jesus' name.